The title of the talk is By Way of Unknowing. In this talk, like in any talk, one draws on very many different sources, and one of the sources is language, obviously. So the question is, what do I mean by knowing, let alone, know, let alone unknowing? As it turns out, if I were to be making this uh, talk in, in uh, Spanish or in French, the talk would be would read quite differently because for what we call knowing in English there is uh, in most of the languages I know there is two different words in Spanish we have saber and conocer in Italian sapere conoscere, conoscere. In French, savoir, connaître. In German, wissen, kennen. And each one of these words means a, a different way of knowing, which are all lumped together in one word in English. Saber, sapere, savoir, wissen, mean the kind of informational knowledge and discursive knowledge. The sort of thing that I'm doing right now, <laughs> or working on right now. While the other words like conocer, conocere, connaître, kennen, refer mostly to acquaintance with and all the way to intimacy with. And um, somehow this idea has dropped out of the English language, but as a verb. Uh, but one could uh, use a rather uncommon word to cognize, to refer to that. In English, it's mostly to Cognize in the sense of recognizing, or that's, that's the only way it's used. Uh, English being a very practical language, doesn't go into this uh, intricacies. I want to talk about these two way, ways of knowing as an introduction to the whole question I want to raise with you. And for the, for the first way of knowing, I'm going to use the illustration of science, which is a, perhaps an archetypical way of knowing in this first way, in this informational and discursive way. And to talk about science, it's also to talk about me for myself. Me, when I was young, I used to be a scientist. And I was really spellbound, fascinated by the possibilities of this way of knowing. Uh, it seemed to satisfy my curiosity, and everybody else around me told me that 
This is the way to go if you wanted to know anything, investigate. And furthermore, it was clear to me, and as is clear to me now, that it's also a way of acquiring certain amount of power. I was pretty good at studying science. I wasn't good at soccer at all, so you know that's I was growing up in Latin America and not to be good at soccer. That's serious. <laughs> I, I always find it funny to talk about me as me, that is, whoever I was as me. And uh, I was recently re-reading a story by an Ar the Argentinian writer that some of you may know, Jorge Luis Borges. Um, the story is called El Otro. And uh, as it turns out, he was walking he was teaching at Harvard when he wrote the story in the early 70s. And he was walking along the Charles River. And he was going to say he saw. At this time, he was pretty blind, but he could still saw, see somehow. He saw somebody sitting on a bench in this story and, uh, and started talking to him and recognized the voice. As it turned out, it was himself when he was 20. And it, it's, it's a fascinating, surreal story of finding oneself, oneself talking to oneself, which uh, I like it because it says a lot about this fiction of the continuity of who, continuity of who we are. And, and there was a certain coolness between Borges and Borges in that story. <laughs> and there was a certain, there is, I feel a certain coolness when I talk about myself, like about 50 years ago. Not very different from the story of Borges. Anyway, from my experience as a scientist, the, the discourse of science, the scientific way of knowing it's a very, very effective way for controlling things, controlling the world, as, as I will, I hope, illustrate, controlling oneself, controlling what happens inside as well. And this is by design. Let me see if I can get this point across. I, I'm really, when I talk about science and this first way of knowing, I'm talking about mainstream science, not efforts to change it, but, but what happens in the mainstream. What, the science that developed, that was kind of reinvented in England in the 17th century and became the leading edge of industrial revolution and all the other scientific revolutions that we are still undergoing, like the informational revolution, etc. And, and this science, for all its pretense of being candid, fair, respectful of facts, even-handed, is in fact a very, very biased way of seeing the world. In the 60s, I was working at the Pasteur Institute 
in Paris. And I was fortunate to be there in a lab who had just been received three Nobel Prizes, French, first French Nobel Prizes in decades. They were very proud. And one of the doors that communicated one lab with another had a, a little saying, just as here we have sayings by Thich Nhat Hanh or whoever it is. There was a saying by a physicist, a British physicist called Eddington, which has stuck in my mind. I hope I'm, I'm remembering it accurately, but certainly the sense was this. It said, never trust the results of your experiments until they have been confirmed by theory. <laughs> you see, the sentence goes very well until confirmed, because we all know that. We run experiments, we check them out, we do them again to make sure we didn't goof. But by theory. Uh, there's a, a, a slight sense of humor there, but, but much greater truth than sense of, well, sense of humor is there. But the truth is there, too. And, and physics has done that. And this particular lab where I work, indeed, had gotten the Nobel Prize doing exactly that. And it was what was called good science. It's what science is about. You develop a theory, and everything that fits into the theory, fine. And what doesn't fit, you push aside. And it works for a while until you have pushed too many things aside. <laughs> and, and then what happens is what's called, and, and this has gone into the New Age language, a paradigm shift. You might have read that word. There's a paradigm shift. Or, to use another terminology, there is a scientific revolution. Now, let me tell you, it takes a lot, a lot of garbage because before anybody would, would even consider a paradigm shift. And, and when these so-called scientific revolutions happen, they're more like replacing a junta by another junta. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, in fact, this, the, the, the major work on the scientific revolutions, it's, uh, the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, a major work that anticipated all this and introduced it, the paradigm shift terminology. He goes into the story that perhaps the major, the major historical event that determines the paradigm shift is the death of a senior scientist. So, what kind of revolution is that? You wait for the tyrant to die. <coughs> now, my point is that without this rigidity, science would not have worked as it has. And this applies also to, to other aspects of the first, um, first way of knowing. That, that its power to control relies very much on this this rigidity of you. Now, if science itself has this rigidity and this, this bias, it gets much worse when you look at the 
dissemination of science and what mass media does, does about science and, and, and what we, the public, do about science. Just look at, uh, at all the people who watch the quiz shows, for instance, and all the value that's put in this silly, not to say another word, accumulation of information. Not only do we do this when we amplify science, but also there's a fabricated scarcity of science. Not everybody is going to be allowed to have a say in what is right and what's wrong, or what do we do and what we don't do. So there's a, a, very, a very stringent system of inclusion-exclusion, so that, that only a few people are chosen to go to the universities and, and, and to, to make it worse. Of course, it's so expensive to do it that not many people can afford it. And then, top of it, there's secrecy that goes on increasingly. Increasingly. But it's always been there, that there's always a few people in the know And then the public, we the public, play the power games with all this. Uh, not long ago I was waiting in Grand Central Station in New York City for a train in the waiting room. And there was uh, two people, a father and daughter, both from Puerto Rico, and I think this has some cultural significance. And they were arguing. And the, the point of the argument was how many people had been killed in Hiroshima. And there, was, there wasn't a trace of compassion about all this. It was a power game between father and daughter. And whoever was right was going to win. And in some strange way, or perhaps not so strange way, their mother was involved as well. Because their daughter was saying, the mother told me this and that. And since they couldn't solve it, they came to me to ask me, and I didn't know. <laughs> and, and then they said, the, the, the father said, I'll tell you what, we're going to ask the cop, the, the policeman. And that's where Puerto Rico comes in, you know, Latin America sense of the power of policemen. And it's so, such an obvious connection. Now, what does all this have to do with meditation and what we do in this hall? I think it has a, a lot to do because the very same way of knowing that we use to control the world, we tend to apply, not surprisingly, to control ourselves or our inner world. And, and when I would re paraphrase Eddington's who said, never trust the results of your experiments until they've been confirmed by theory. I'd say, never trust your feelings until they have been confirmed by view. Never trust your feelings until they have been confirmed by view. That is to say, let's not take any chance to feel feelings that are not in accordance to who we think we are. And that goes 
for us because as knowledge you think that's knowledge of ourselves I think I know myself I know myself I don't get angry I say with rage in my voice and perhaps uh, knuckles in my red knuckles in my fists we've seen that we know that I, I, I have at least one person in mind that does that repeatedly I'm not affected by this or that and is struggling to retain to, to avoid bursting into sobs a more common or milder situation is in sometimes in interviews somebody comes and says I have nothing to say and out comes a torrent of things that this person wanted to say but, I mean I say this is very mild because it's really immediately removed but but other other ways of thinking of myself can be very very rigid and cause a lot of pain to self and to others in other words we invent ourselves in a certain way and and we stick with that and and I say I'm a nice person and I, I have to defend that I'm a nice person well th there was no need to do that you know I'm just a person But of course, who profits from all this manipulation of who I am is the ego, who is so eager to step into a role. By ego I mean that, that aspect of ourselves that, that seems to, to invent itself, <laughs> to invent itself and give itself top billing in the play of our lives. And so, it isn't surprising that there is all this addictiveness about knowing, because it seems to bolster this, this appearance of self-knowledge. I, I was reading some time ago an article by Stephen Butterfield, which I liked, uh, because he says uh, quite honestly, talking about himself at an earlier period of his life, he says that was my ego burden to be stumbling around constantly in a fog of opinion and discursive thoughts afraid to be naked and alone without disguises without the reference points of good and evil fake and genuine right and wrong self and other And then he says, further down, the habits of the ego mind are likely to reassert themselves and interpret events in order to make a choice that is less threatening to its own existence. The temptation is strong to solidify our opinions and bring in a verdict. But verdicts contribute little to human wisdom. 
starting referring to two ways of knowing, um, and I'd like to say a few words about the, the, what I'm calling the second way of knowing, for which the, the, the word, the verb cogni to cognize, could be used. That is, uh, the being acquainted, being intimate with others, with the world, with ourselves. And in fact, in, in most of the languages that I know, I think not in Hebrew, but in Spanish, Italian, French, and German, I think, I understand, uh, this second word for the way of knowing includes the biblical knowing, the sexual knowing, the, the physical intimacy with another person as well. Now, just as uh, at times it seems that sexual knowledge of another person has been, or can be very debased in our world, um, the intimacy with the world, the acquaintance with the world that's implied by this word that I translate as cognizing, is also kind of gone out of use in a way. Not surprising that the English should have dropped the word altogether. And that it should have really saved cognizing for the recognizing, simply for the fitting one perception onto a previous perception. Oh yes, this I have perceived before. I recognize it. But the just, the just cognizing, the just perceiving, is hardly practice. We emphasize it here in this hall, here just sounds, as, is, as Shara's instructions went on today, for instance. Uh, be just with the direct experience, but somehow slips through the language, and although other Spanish and French and German, etc., have these two words, there's no serious concept to go with the cognizing. So, in contrast with this knowing, I'm going to use the word wisdom, uh, which uh, lacks a verb, <coughs> but at least there's a sense of what we mean. So, it'd be interesting to have a word, how to apprehend a verb, to apprehend the knowing that implies wisdom. To embark on a path of wisdom is to find truth undistorted by the wants of the ego. And for this path, the conventional knowledge, type 1 or type 2 knowledge, knowing, is of really little use. More than that, 
conventional knowledge will often be found to be an encumbrance to this deeper understanding. It's like uh, when we go on a backpacking trip, we, we of course will carry a few necessities, like uh, clothing and warm clothing and whatever is needed and maybe some, some things that will, a, a map, a guidebook, but we're certainly, uh, hopefully, not going to carry all our library. And, however, sometimes and people come to retreats with all the knowledge stored up in their head, it is like bringing here a, a totally useless and, and troublesome weight of a library. If not, it's almost like taking a, a grand piano on a hike. It does impede our walking in a hike, in a hike. It does impede our receptivity right here and now. So, the encouragement is to let go of, of all the addiction to accumulated knowledge, to accumulated information. And give, give the mind a break. Give, give, leave thought, let thought do its job, but don't bring it here to interfere with the development of wisdom. Leave all this knowledge at home and don't try to pick up more knowledge right here. That's why the encouragement of not reading, not writing, not doing any serious note-taking. Because whatever is going to be revealed depends on a receptivity. And receptivity to yourselves. Ability to do some inner listening. Nothing that I say here matters at all unless it triggers some discovery in you until it, it resonates with something that you know. Neither is this a place for problem solving. Of course, all kinds of problems are going to come and visit you in the sittings, in the walking. And they are very useful. They are opportunities, but not opportunities to solve the problems. Opportunities to solve yourself. 
opportunity to solve yourself. That is to to see what other ways there are to be in the world. To do what Christopher was referring earlier today in the inquiry, to do some inner asking, to ask yourself innerly and to keep asking and see what comes up. And any amount of knowledge, of knowing, will interfere with this process. This requires some trust in the power of meditation and in the silence that it brings. Now you would say, since I mentioned carrying a map for the hiking trip, what map do I carry? What route map do I take with me for the sittings? Trouble is, or, or the reality is really, that there are no maps for uncharted territory. This is, for each one of us, uncharted territory. And, and nobody that I know of said it any better than um, a 16th century mystic known in English as St. John of the Cross. And here I'll say it in Spanish, what San Juan de la Cruz said, I'll translate it later. He said, Para venir a lo que no sabes, has de ir por donde no sabes. which I translate, in order to arrive at what you do not know, you ho have to go by way of what you do not know. It's as simple as that. <coughs> Otherwise, you are going to end up where you already know. And, and that doesn't seem to be a, a very good place, certainly not all the time. Now, this is surely not an invitation to ignorance, on the contrary. It's an invitation to exploration. It's, it's an invitation to discover a place that has not been solid, has not been sort of turned useless by abuse of so-called knowledge, which as I described before, it's a controlling knowledge. It's a, a knowledge, this ordinary knowledges that we have, and knowledges that end up, end up giving us what 
what we set out with, that don't bring in any novelty, simply confirm the theory, confirm the view. So, the only way to really discover is to go into this uncharted territory. And the only environment where we can do that is an environment of silence. From which awareness, wisdom and understanding can emerge. And since I love to speak Spanish and I don't get many opportunities, I'm going to share with you to, to finish a poem by Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet, which I'll read first in Spanish and then in English. It'll be, I won't read it all, which is called Acallarse, Keeping Quiet. Acallarse, he says. Ahora contaremos doce y nos quedamos todos quietos. Por una vez sobre la tierra no hablaremos en ningún idioma. Por un segundo detengámonos, no movamos tanto los brazos. Sería un minuto fragante, sin prisa, sin locomotoras. Todos estaríamos juntos en una quietud instantánea. Si no podemos ser unánimos, moviendo tanto nuestras vidas. Ahí repito. Si no, pudimos ser, si no pudimos ser unánimes, moviendo tanto nuestras vidas, tal vez no hacer nada una vez. Tal vez un gran silencio pueda interrumpir esta tristeza. Este no entendernos jamás y amenazarnos con la muerte. Tal vez la tierra nos enseñe cuando todo parece muerto y luego todo estaba vivo. Ahora contaré hasta doce. Y tú te callas y me voy. Translation. Keeping quiet. Now we will count to twelve and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. If we, were, if we could not stay in agreement while keeping our lives moving, perhaps by once doing nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us 
as when everything seems dead and later turns out to be alive. Now, I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. So, no. We'll do as Neruda says. Keep quiet for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.